Welcome to the Climate Collective podcast with David Boyd and myself, Sharifa Sairadi. We talk to innovators, inventors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers working at the cutting edge of climate technology. We go beyond the hype and talk to them about what motivates them and what frustrates them to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. Today, we talk to Emily Shai Tissier, co-founder and CEO of Whale Seeker. You might ask, why whales? Whales, all whales, are ecosystem engineers, and they cycle nutrients within the water column and, and within the entire ocean, which is essential for redistributing essential nutrients for phytoplankton, for primary productivity in the oceans, and this is the main carbon sink um, of the world. So it's it's a uh, not to be overlooked, even though you know uh, phytoplankton are are less charismatic than big uh, you know Amazon rainforest trees. But whales sequester great whales sequester about thirty three tons of carbon uh, in their body biomass throughout their lifetimes. And then on top of that, if you calculate in all of the other ecosystem services that they provide um, with nutrient cycling, um, with the potential through their lifetimes to reproduce, and then what are those influences that that the offspring have on the world as well? In 2019, those, um, those ecosystem services were valued at $2 million uh, per great whale. My name is Emily Charitissier. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Whale Seeker. We are a Canadian company that uses ethical AI to detect marine mammals and marine megafauna from images using off-the-shelf hardware. And we do this in order to scale ocean monitoring so that ocean industries and all ocean stakeholders have access to high-quality ocean data to make the best management decisions with. Emily Shahid is here, so uh, my uh, French is a little rusty, apologies for that, uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, but actually, you know what I'm like super excited about uh, talking to you today, because, uh, you know, we, we talk about um, uh, climate so much, and there's so much discussion about climate all over the internet, and with investors and startups and all of that. Uh, but one, there, there is a very important part of climate and something also related to climate I forget about, and it's the... Um, uh, the environment, uh, the, the the ecological side of the environment, and it's biodiversity, uh, mm-hmm. and in many cases the two uh, connect to each other. So, so actually, so you know, so uh, whale seeker. Um, uh, yeah. So you know, your CEO, co-founder, whale seeker. Why whales? Yeah, good question. Well, the first reason why whales is because I'm married a marine biologist, so that's where uh, it all got started, really. I'm I'm a community ecologist. I really love messy data, big data sets, trying to understand natural processes when everything is linked and everything's entangled. And, and that those processes of, of community adaptation are really interesting to me. My husband is very interested in whales and, and marine mammal conservation and marine mammal behavior. Um, and so during my maternity leave, we had the opportunity to collaborate together on a WWF Arctic Species grant. 
And our job was to sort of put our, our heads together and, um, and look at some aerial images in a, in a marine protected area that was being planned in the Canadian Arctic to see what was the critical habitat of narwhals. And then within the, those critical habitat areas, did any place warrant extra protection or special monitoring? And what I found is just right off the bat that the data was not standardized, not by a long shot. There was a tremendous amount of inter and intra-observer bias when labeling the data from humans, which makes sense because some people are a little more trigger happy. Some people are just doing their, their bachelors. Some people are have done their PhD. So there's a great variation in data labeling. And I thought there must be just a quick and dirty way to automate this. Um, but I reached out to some tech companies and they said, sure, starting starting at $300,000, we can create something for you, which was, you know, quite a bit more than we had on a WWF grant budget. And and you were trying to detect uh, the population, like detect narwhal whales? Right. So we wanted to detect narwhals, but more than just narwhals, we're interested in demographic information. So with narwhals, most of the males have a tusk. And... Um, and so you can tell males and females, you can tell young, so you can get a lot more data than just how many individuals are there in a certain area. You can get male to female ratios. How are they using the habitat as well? Are they in this sort of fighter pilot, fighter jet uh, uh, setup? Or are we know which means that they're traveling or are they oriented in all sorts of different ways? We can, we can then infer that they're using this for feeding or some other social. So how, how are they using it? So there's a lot more information to be gained than just number of individuals. And there are really big uh, decisions that are based on these data. So, you know, hunting quotas for Inuit, for example, you know, do offshore projects get get permitting? What are their marine mammal monitoring um, protocols and regulations that they're going to have to meet? But how can this scale? Because we can't we can't scale ocean monitoring if we're relying on an army of human beings to go through manually images. And when my husband and I talked with our our friend group who are also wildlife managers, but in different different sectors. So in, in maritime transportation and offshore energy and conservation and government, and they all had the same bottleneck of needing this precise spatial and temporal data, but not having the resources, time or money to get through the imagery. So I thought, okay, there must be a way to do this. There wasn't. And so we created Whale Seeker this way. You know, we, two biologists, and I thought, okay, I can't find any tech um, co-founder for this. I will just, you know, um, get a machine learning book and do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, did you have some coding experience? 
I cool. not listen, not just biologist coding experience. So I I was I was okay, I was good at R, you know, so I can analyze so community data sets and these types of things. And I'm I'm I, I really love the world of statistics and really understanding what tools can we use and with greater computing power, we can analyze larger and larger, really messy data sets that don't meet a lot of normal sort of distribution assumptions, which rarely happen in the wild. And so I was really excited about these tools, but I didn't have the I didn't have the toolkit myself to really be the the tech founder, but I found um I found our CTO at the dog park. Our dogs both really liked uh, <laughs> tennis balls. And so we got to talking and 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 um, he's a software uh, developer and, and an engineer. And so I said, gosh, can you help me? I have this idea and I just can't crack into the, the tech crowd, even though they say, oh, we want to be multidisciplinary. It was hard to join groups mm. or break into that, to the, that tech community. And so over several months of, of speaking with him and getting him to make some introductions, he just said, I'm, I'm the guy for this job. And he surely was. So, so, so I, so um, I think, I mean, that this kind of, uh, you know, chance meeting is, is amazing. And I'm going to take a little segue because I'm, I never yeah. miss a chance to talk about dogs, but uh, <laughs> so, so what's your dog like? Uh, yeah. They well, they um he's a he's a, a large dog. He's a mix between a border collie and a, a great Pyrenees. And and he's 13 now. And he oh, big boy. Yeah, big uh big tennis ball fan. And then Antoine's dog is a labradoodle. And so they were they were a good team at the dog park. Very yeah. good, very good. And I mean I have to say, like uh, you know, uh having a uh dogs is a very good start for any company right absolutely um, yes absolutely um so uh yeah so uh, actually so uh, maybe uh kind of talking about the uh kind of you meeting uh, your co-founder and and because uh, you, you live in uh, montreal uh or, and uh you know it's it's one of the really big um cities for machine learning for ai it's kind of known as one one of the uh, centers in north america if not globally how did that contribute how kind of being in that kind of environment do you think kind of made you kind of go in that direction rather than perhaps any other directions yeah great question and the reason why this was so appealing to me is because um I had been working in multivariate statistics where the data are non-normal, where we're dealing with multiple variables at the same time. And so, and with greater computing power becomes greater tools that you can use because you don't manually have to crunch all of these data and you can, you can iterate um, sort of random data sets really quickly to see what sort of patterns exist in nature. And the, the, the next step above that is machine learning and, and taking, you know, thousands of parameters or hundreds of thousands of parameters, billions of parameters, um, and, and being able to make sense of that as well. And so, you know, with messy data, real life data, data that, you know, tools that need to adapt to use cases as well and need to adapt to environmental conditions and different types of marine mammal populations and different data acquisition types. There, 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 there's much more variability than just ge geographically in the world where are these images taken, 
What species are they looking at? Um, seasonally, is there ice? Is there turbid water from runoff? Um, what is the sea state? So there, there's so many, there are so many factors to take into consideration to really get the 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 data that the biologists need to make their decisions. So this is what I, I knew that this was the the way to go for the next step of analyzing these data sets. But I also knew that the marine mammal managers, the wildlife biologists, the program managers, they don't have the bandwidth um, financially or time-wise to innovate from scratch themselves. So that's what we decided to do for Whale Seeker was to say, okay, how can we pair domain expertise with tech expertise and get at the root of how do we interpret these images so that decisions can be based off of them? How long did it take? So from that first meeting with the dogs uh, and they're kind of scoping out of the technology, how long until you actually got the first results back where you said, actually, we've done all these different steps and, oh, we've got something working? I will say that we are a particular brand of founders because we're all scientists. Um, and so we have we, we sort of took an offshoot from the Las Vegas, uh, like hand wavy, let's sell an idea before, you know, let's say we can do something before we can do it. So um, sort of counter to the, the startup culture, we were quite conservative and in, in talking about what we could do and, and saying what we could do until we really had the proof behind it. And we've been working towards something good um, over the past four years, but it was really with the publication of our, our paper this past year where we evaluated Mobius, which is our, our tool to detect marine mammals from aerial imagery, so from drones and from aircraft. We compared our method with the Department of Fisheries and Ocean Canada's method for manually annotating a data set of 5,500 images. Um, and we found that with, you know, 4% of the manpower, we get to their level of accuracy. And actually a lot of the, the things that were flagged as false positives in our in our model use were actually true positives that were just missed in the that were just missed in the in the original you know data set and so so we have we have good proof now that our model is at expert level or better standards much faster plus standardizing those data in a certain respect but um what we're excited about on top of that is that we've also had the opportunity to scale this year as well. So we've done projects of analyzing 100,000 images for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, their Arctic division. We have done satellite imagery. We've done aerial imagery. We've worked with images from drones, from aircraft. Um, and really, we're, you know, people will say, oh, aren't belugas easy to detect because they're so light? you know, they're white in a sea of black, but when the sea of black is, is peppered with ice chunks, um, it's not an asset <laughs> to really to, to be white, you know? So, 
So we we had the opportunity as well over the past four years to adapt our AI detection tools to meet the needs of the different clients that we have. So for example, um, you know, maybe biologists know how much time a beluga spends in the top two meters of the water column and they don't want any animals deeper than that. You know, that's something that we can tweak our model to provide for them versus if you're monitoring for a construction exclusion zone, you want to be really sensitive and make sure that you detect anything that enters that area. So it's also about being able to have a technical tool that adapts with the scientific needs and the, the wildlife needs of the managers. So uh, first of all, sorry, I just want to say, I mean, that that 96% reduction in uh, the human resources required is absolutely astounding, right? Because you can see how, how much, like obviously how, how much more can be done now, right? That's right. Yes. And uh, we're working on real-time solutions this summer. So it's really, you know, it gets you a long time to get to a certain point and then we can just really fly. So. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we'd love to kind of maybe hear, hear a bit more about uh, Mobius itself, uh, sure. like what it does, how it works, to the extent you can talk about it. And um, and also like some of the, you mentioned a couple of the possible use cases, but like kind of what, what are the, like why do organizations, uh, companies perhaps different, uh, why, we, why do they need this kind of uh, uh, information analysis? So, um, so the way that Mobius works is a, is a human in the loop process where uh, we get a bulk, bulk delivery of images. So maybe over two weeks, there's an aerial campaign to survey a strategic area. They gather a lot of aerial images and then they send us the images to, to analyze. And by analyzing, I mean, we detect the marine mammals or their species of interest within those images. And then we send them back the data in the way that makes sense for them. Maybe it's shape files, maybe it's just CSV file with the, the categories of animals and their, their GPS location. Um, so, so the way that the data gets delivered to the client really depends on what, how they're going to be using it for analysis. But the way that it works is we have our base model. We, we, we gather all of the images that our clients need. We, we run our, our model to go through it initially. We then, the model picks out about 50 images that are representative um, that will teach the model the most. So about environmental variation, um, you know, different species. So just sort of the, all of the different complexities within each image. Our human expert, our human biologist, uh, annotates those 50 images. Those 50 images get added to our training set and Mobius it gets refined on those, those nuances for the specific data set. And then we take a look and see what are those output. In the paper that we published, we found that it was only two iterations that we needed to go through um, in order to get human level accuracy, really within the first, we're reaching we're reaching human level accuracy, but within the second, we 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 can really eke out those few extra percentage points to, for it to be expert human level. Um, so that's how that works. Um, the way that Mobius Observer works. Um, this is the real-time application of Mobius for use 
for marine mammal observer professionals when they are using an off-the-shelf drone technology. So, so we only work with off-the-shelf hardware because people who have who have trouble innovating um, usually don't have a military budget. You know, so we're 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 really targeting like the other ninety-nine percent of the world who who need accessible tools with accessible hardware that they can fix and buy. Easily. Um, so obvious observer in real time will will works where the algorithm then lives either on payload on the drone or on the computer that the drone is communicating with. You program a flight path. They will get notified in real time if there is a suspected marine mammal within their images. And then it's uh, the human is part of the process, but a different place in the process. So then the human marine mammal observer would be prompted with an image to say, is this a whale? Yes or no. And ultimately they will be making the final call. Um, but all of those data are then, are then stored. Um, they're auditable. We know better in space and time where those detections are happening. Um, just giving human observers the ability to do much more. And really, I mean, one of the main problems with anything in the ocean is data acquisition and how much, how data poor really it is and how tricky it is and expensive it is to get ocean data. So the standards for, for making decisions based on a plethora of data are different for terrestrial and, and marine habitats. And what's frustrating in the marine area is that people are used to dealing with terrestrial ecosystems and saying this is how we de-risk something this is how much data we need these are this is how many years of experience we need in order to have something acceptable to invest in or to scale but but really dealing with the marine world is much different because we have much less data to go on 70% of the world is oceans, you know, only 4% of that is our coasts, which is where the majority of the blue carbon biodiversity assessment, everything is going on. How do we scale up? And if we're to meet these 30 by 30 conservation goals, how, we need ways to manage these conservation areas that we're setting aside and understand what are the biodiversity risks? You know, what is the the amplitude of this problem of ship strikes along global shipping routes, not just close to ports and in very busy areas? We have an idea, you know, in in very small areas, but we don't know the size of the problem. And so, the typical way of engaging with investors is to say, "Here's the size of this problem." here's the solution. This is by what percentage we will reduce the problem. But we don't have those base data to go off of, not, nothing reliable, you know, on a global scale in any sense. So we're doing our best guess. And I feel like that apprehension is what's keeping us from shifting gears to ocean solutions. You know, they're saying, you know, VCs are sort of just coming around to mangroves um but this is not new you know so it might be big it might be innovative in the sense of scaling this globally but 
we know that the, the science behind the value of mangroves has been in existence for a very long time. We cannot wait. There is an urgency to act because the ocean is responsible for half of the oxygen that we breathe. It's a big climate regulator. It's the largest carbon sink in the world. Whales are nutrient uh, engineers really, they, they, they are cycling the nutrients both vertically in the water column, but also throughout North-South hemispheres. So it, we really can't attack this piecemeal. We need to look at it holistically and think about biodiversity and ocean risk. And it's more than just avoiding ship strikes. It's about underwater noise. It's about pollution. It's about understanding ocean risk. So what's really pushing regulators to get quantitative data and not just saying this is how much money we're dumping into ESG, this category, is to say, what are the actual metrics, the ocean metrics that are standardized data that you can say year one to year two, here's the change in population or here's the change in activity that we've had. We're missing those accessible tools to reach these COP15 goals, you know? Yeah, and it's, a, it's interesting because it's not just, as you say, it's not just the upside, as the opportunities we could be going after if we have better data. And then equally, there's downside risks we're taking. We just don't fully understand them because we don't have the data. So I just in the last week, I had read two completely different articles. One was in The Economist saying deep sea floor bed mining, industrial mining, you know, the rest of the ocean is, is what we've got to do because we need it for our wind farms and our engineering. And then the same from Greenpeace saying, my God, we're going into this area where we know absolutely nothing about what the life is going on down there. And we're just going to start mining without understanding the consequences. And it, I suppose it comes down to, I think, what's really interesting is the AI is it unlocks now an industrial data capture because before you'd have said, actually, there's no point capturing this data. We don't have the manpower to process it. Now that's not an excuse. Actually, we can process the data. Let's go out there and start getting it. Yeah, absolutely. But I think a step further that we need to go is to say, who's who are developing these AI tools? How are they developing them? How are they running their business? Because being in AI, all of us, we all know that the AI is only as good as the training data set, as the people who are creating these models, the, the companies that are using these models to do work. If there, if there are people who are, you know, bad actors anyway along this this value chain, the output's going to be crap. <laughs> and, and and I think you know because you, you know what what's really fascinating is that throughout your uh, the, our discussion you you many many times obviously you come back to the uh, the expert the domain expert the marine biologists the people who who know the stuff that they're looking at to know what this the, the 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 images that the AI is picking for them and and I think that you know goes to like if if I were to look at my uh, my LinkedIn feed over the last few months you know I would think if I just only had that. To, to look at, I would say, okay, actually, ChatGPT is going to solve everything, and it's the uh, be all and end all of AI. And obviously, it's you know, it's incredibly impressive. You know, there's okay, uh, very very powerful. But but there's something that I think you know, it's kind of really getting to. It's not just the um, 
you know that 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 model that you build, the machine learning that you build, it's it's kind of that the value of the domain expertise, which I think can never, um, you know, if if we dismiss it, I think we miss so much, and we end up with all sorts of weird things in the end. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a it's a AI is a tool, you know, just like if you're building a house, you can use a screwdriver to put in a nail, but it's not going to work for you, even though it's a good tool and it does what it's supposed to do. But if it's misused or people don't know how to use it or, um, yeah, you really need education along the whole, the whole, um, the whole chain. Um, you know, the classic example of what we are up against is that in the past, First movers have said, well, we like to use AI to detect marine mammals from images, but there was, you know, maybe the government deal, you know, pairing with a big tech company. And then they say, we need a solution that detects all of the whales. A half a million dollars later, the tech company says, here you go. It detects 99% of all the whales. The biologists go, great. And then they look and they see, oh, but it also detects every white cap, every buoy, every pelican, every. So technically, the tool does what it was asked to do, but it's not serving the purpose that it was that it was asked, you know, tasked to do. And that is really the the, the disconnect in, in needing domain expertise and technical expertise because. There are a lot of biologists I know as well that say, oh, we could just use this off the shelf, free stuff that's available everywhere for image annotation, but you don't know what's going on behind the curtain. You don't know how what the accuracy is behind that. So what's frustrating to me is this, you know, wanting to go to the to the to the cheapest bidder and maybe data annotation, the people not being domain experts, they're maybe not getting paid a fair living wage in whatever country they're in. So I am frustrated in this juxtaposition between this extreme attention to ethical AI that we have nowadays, but the uh, but the the larger governments and the larger organizations not willing to put the money and the time into ethically created AI projects, it's still just the cheapest to the cheapest bidder. And it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I think the, like in so many cases, when you talk, I mean, I think it, probably all cases, when you talk about uh, the ethical development, you also talk about the the, uh, the better development, right? So you talk about the, the higher quality and the higher um, possibility of likelihood of meeting the end goal of whoever the client, the customer is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's really where where the strength lies in Whale Seeker are the the different types of expertise that we have all under the same metaphorical roof. And we've been working on this project, you know, marine megafauna for the past five years. People have said, "Can you do this? Can you do you know whales and?" you know, ships or and submarines and caribou and, you know, and we've always said, no, we're, we're detecting marine megafauna. We are going to solve this problem on a global scale. We're not going to do 50 other things. This is really what our focus is. And um, maybe uh, just kind of also uh, wanted to touch on, um, you know, some, some of the other uh, products that uh, you you have. So uh, 
let, let me if I can, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this properly, but Cetus? Yeah, that's right. And, this is and ARC. So yeah. uh, can, you, can you tell us a bit more about them? Sure, happy, happy to. So Cetus is our, our automated marine mammal detection solution, but coming from satellite imagery. So uh, we published a paper a few years ago where we were the first to detect mid-sized whales from very high resolution satellite imagery. So we detected individual narwhals and beluga. And now, you know, because of COVID, because of the this attention to oceans during the ocean decade that we have upon us as well, there's a lot more resources and there's there's been this this increased interest in using satellite imagery. And that is also going through, you know, thousands of square kilometers of, of imagery that's very expensive. So how do we how do we go through that quickly? How do we how do we do it in a standardized way? The precision is much less um is much a much lower quality just because the image quality is much lower resolution than using aerial images um but they they do offer a very powerful tool for getting a snapshot of a very large area areas that are either too dangerous uh for humans to go to environmentally or politically um and in places where there's just no resources to actually get off the shore um and look a little bit further beyond the you know into international waters and and, and understand you know try and fill these gaps in ocean data a different way so so, so where the aerial kind of aerial imagery is not feasible it's not uh something that is right. very practical and so that fills the gap even though it's not to the same level of, of detail but yeah. it's it... exactly exactly and and what we're excited about is being a piece of the puzzle into multimodal detection systems so let's say there's already uh you know human marine mammal observers and maybe acoustic data how can we you know, boost their confidence with their with the acoustic data? How can we give tools to the human marine mammal observers that allow them to do a survey a greater area with more precision? So it's really about, about finding ways to just shift gears um, in the in the scope and the precision and the the replicable data that um, that are available to ocean managers. But yeah. So uh so really, how do you see, uh, where's the potential there? How do you see the potential going for whale speaker, uh, for, for kind of this kind of uh, technology and the kind of solutions you are developing over the coming five to 10 years? What's what's the what's the dream? Yeah, the, that's a great question. The dream is to be the technical and ethical standard setter and reference for visual marine mammal detection globally. So we are looking to, like I said, be the, the sort of add-on or piece in the puzzle into existing data delivery systems, but how can whale seeker go into existing maybe route planning, marine route planning um, services where they've got real-time um, weather data, real-time currents, real-time sea states, um, how can whales be one more data point into planning the best route between point A and point B? 
Um, how can we enable ports to be, you know, managing their marine traffic with marine mammals in real time so that there's a smaller impact, negative impact on industry, but a greater positive impact on marine mammal conservation? It really is more data, better data to the right people on a finer scale. So our goal is to get this into the hands of the most people possible so that they can base their sustainability decisions on on standardized you know uh, facts instead of I swear I saw a whale out there I don't have any proof but take my word for it um you know which is better when which is better than nothing when there's nothing but and and really the the reason that I'm so hopeful in the past um 2 years is that there's much more buy in from the private finance um industries that is that is really lighting a fire under quantifying ocean risk biodiversity risk when we're talking about blue carbon it can't be carbon for carbon's sake because monocultures we know are, are not good uh, in farming <laughs> nor in in wildlife any wildlife. So how do we how do we quantify the added value of this natural capital um, and use nature based solutions to sort of plug the hole in the bucket before we start filling the bucket again? Kind of uh, seeing a few things about how we know so much more about space potentially than we know about uh, the ocean depth, for example, uh, and and that's it's quite mind-boggling, right? And um, there is no possible solution to climate change to global heating without truly understanding what's going on in the ocean, because I mean it is seventy percent of the surface of the planet, and if we don't get that, we don't understand it in terms of what's going on and what the, how we could work with with what's already in the oceans to, uh, to to either mitigate emissions or absorb more carbon and kind of work for on nature-based solutions that, that, that there's no, you know, there's nothing we can do. So that's absolutely, you know, um, absolutely essential that you have a much better understanding of what's going on, which starts with data. Yeah, it does. It starts with data and it really is about data equity as well, right? Because there's, there's so much friction um, in, you know, sort of between governments and fisheries or between industry and conservation, because, because most of the, the data is owned by, you know, uh, global environmental consulting companies, engineering companies, oil and gas, military governments. So it's really the, the rich and the well-funded that have access to the most amount of data but we know that the that it's it's essential to have community buy-in so how can we bridge that gap so that compliance increases but also the efficacy of these tools is is increased as well and the only way we're going to get to do that is by including the different communities, the different industries, so that they can contribute to the solution and they're not just receiving this top-down, um, you know, regulations that they have to comply to. And then we know that the fines don't work. We know that it's a slap on the wrist for, you know, and very few people, you know, if there is a slowdown area, very few people actually get fined. So there's not a whole lot of incentive to follow the rules. 
one thing I wanted to mention. So congratulations, Emily, because uh, Whale Seeker and Mobius in particular, your your uh, product uh, was recognized as one of the uh, top 10 um, AI products by uh, UNESCO uh, to promote sustainable development. So that's an amazing, uh, I think, amazing achievement, amazing recognition. Really, congratulations to you and to, to the whole team. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, our team is is just magical. They're they're so smart. They're so good. And um, I'm so lucky to be working with them. Amazing. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. This was wonderful. Yeah, I could talk with you guys all day. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll uh, one day, maybe if we're in Canada, we'll definitely uh, go continue that over, over, over some food or something. Yeah, that sounds um, good. And the, and the next one we could do in French as well. I need to brush up my French. We can do yeah. It's a bit of a challenge. Um, also, brush up on your Quebecois. That's right. Cool. Great to meet you, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Nice Great to meet you. you. Okay. Yep. Bye-bye. Great to speak. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in again in a few weeks for our next episode. Thanks and credits for the music go to King Fire Thermos. 